Oh yeah. So, this afternoon we'll return to the meditation almost straight away. And what I'll do this afternoon is, in this session, will be to simply read once again, give the transmission for the same meditation, but without the elaboration, just the straight instruction. Uh, so this morning we kind of hammered in the nail, and then this afternoon we countersink the nail, you know, so you'll never get it out. Uh, speaking very briefly to those listening to podcasts, Generally, of course, it would be very nice if you could be here, uh, that we could, we could all experience each other's physical presence. But in one way, it might be a, a bit of an advantage to you, more so than the people here in Phuket, to have just the voice. Because there's nothing else you're getting. And it's just the voice, just the speech. That is Padmasambhava. So you're getting Padmasambhava without elaboration. No visual imagery of an old 64-year-old guy. You know, what do you need that for? You know, so it's just a speech. So that's good. So where the speech comes from, it's your choice, because there are multiple right answers, right? Multiple right answers. But if you'd like to receive the deepest blessing, the deepest transformation, then you, you trace the source of that speech to its real source. It's the mind of Padmasambhava. But this is exactly analogous to tracing the source of your own thoughts. You have some recollection of the teachings this morning. Right? Where do your thoughts come from? They come from your mind. Woman's mind, man's mind, psyche, yeah, that's true. Well, anything more? Can you go deeper? Sure, they're coming from the substrate consciousness. Where else would they be coming from? They're not coming from neurons, that's silly. Coming from the substrate consciousness. I mean, if you ask, really, where, where are they deep, more deeply coming from? Substrate consciousness. That's good. Anything more? Where's your substrate consciousness coming from? Rikpa. Pristine awareness. Same outside, same inside. Isn't it? And then we can say, well, really, outside, inside, we're peaceful people listening with headphones. Where's this coming from? Inside or outside? Outside your head? Inside your head. Outside your mind? Inside your mind. Have you found the barrier? Have you found the boundary? When you look for your mind, did you find its periphery? If so, then tell me what shape it has. How big is it? So where's the difference between outside and inside? Or can we dispense with the question? So that's enough. Now let's just go and listen to Padmasambhava and follow his pointing out instructions. Please find a comfortable position.
as you become more adept at settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state, you may find that you can more and more easily and more and more swiftly slip right into this dynamic equilibrium of the body, of the respiration, and of your mind, your awareness remaining still and clear even in the midst of the activities of the mind. Oh, now steadily observe this consciousness at the time of placing the mind steadfastly and without modification.
once you have calmed the compulsive thoughts in your mind right where they are, and the mind is unmodified, isn't there a motionless stability? Oh, this is called shamatha, but it is not the nature of the mind. Now steadily observe the very nature of your own mind that is being still.
Is there a resplendent emptiness that is no thing, that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance, shape, or color? That is called the empty essence. Isn't there a luster of that emptiness that is unceasing, clear, immaculate, soothing, and luminous, as it were? That is called the luminous nature.
Its essential nature is the indivisibility of sheer emptiness, not established as anything, and its unceasing vivid luster in which awareness is resplendent and brilliant, as it were. Continue practicing in silence.
through the second half of the 1970s. They did a great deal of translating for lamas, quite a number of lamas. His Holiness Dalai Lama, Geshe Raptan, for many, many hours. Quite a number of other lamas as well. And then in the 80s, off and on, a good deal more. And then for the first seven years of the 1990s, then translated many, many times for Gyatra Rinpoche, because during that little window I was his primary interpreter. And I had a sense early on that I was doing my work the best. Of course, first of all, it has to be accurate, it has to be clear. And if it can be nicely phrased in English, that's all the better. But accurate, then clear, and then if the phrasing is nice, if it's pleasant to hear, all the better. But setting that aside, all that's simply the, the profession, the skill of translating. But beyond that, I had a sense very early on that I was doing my best, or any translator is doing his or her best, to the extent that you're invisible, you know, that people really feel they're hearing the Lama. The Lama speaks only Tibetan, doesn't speak English. But you're just focusing on the Lama. And as you're listening, you're maybe focusing your eyes on the Lama. And you're listening, the Lama has spoken, you didn't understand anything. And now the interpreter is speaking, your eyes are still on the Lama. They should be, he's the speaker. And you just have a sense that it was kind of like, just almost like a sound coming from a far distance. And it comes, and by the time it hits your ears, the lips have stopped moving. You know, a little bit like that, that you really have a sense, I'm listening to the Lama. And who is the interpreter? I can't quite remember. With man or woman, I, quite, I mean, that's a bit exaggerated, but you have the idea, yeah. The more invisible you are, then you're, then you're a good translator, right? Because people are not coming to look at you. They're not coming, oh, this is a really good translator teaching over there. I don't know who the Lama is, but the translator is really good. Nobody ever goes for that reason, right? So likewise, teaching Dharma. In a way, the more invisible the teacher is, the better. So it doesn't, he or she doesn't catch your attention. Your, your attention doesn't snag, doesn't get caught, but just flows right through to the source of the teaching. Now, in actually cultivating a relationship with a, with a guru in this Vajrayana context, there's a, a metaphor that's a very good one. Heard it long ago. And that is, said, to we actually be cultivating a personal relationship? with a lama is like trying to get milk from a, a, mother, a mother tiger, a tigress. And that is, if you're too far away, you won't get any milk. But if you get too close, you may get clawed. Now what? Because the lama's grumpy or irritable or irascible? Could be. Some lamas are quite, quite wrathful. That's true, but that's not what they're really getting. If you get too close to the Lama, you can become very familiar with the Lama. And you're never seeing the Lama any more than you're ever seeing your husband or your wife or your children or your friends. You never see them, as in you know, them, as they are in and of themselves, from their own side, by their own nature. You never see them, ever. They never see you and you never see them. It's always, for example, if I look over there and there's Carl, I'm not just seeing Carl, I'm seeing Carl me. Carl me. Because what everything I know about Carl, or anybody else in this room, or my wife, or my stepdaughter, my grandchild, my father, and so forth, is always entangled. It's always, it's always a you me. A you me, you me, you me. They me, you me, you me, you me. 
It's always, I'm always caught up in this. It's never the Dalai Lama. Never, I've never seen the Dalai Lama. I've never heard the Dalai Lama. It's always Dalai Lama me. You know, it's always my take, my perspective, intertwined with my conceptual framework, my interpretations, my projections, things he's, he's revealing that I'm not even seeing. Seeing, and then there are things that I'm seeing that he's not revealing because they're just projections. And that's for the Dalai Lama. It's for all of us, right? But now if you really develop a, more, a closer relationship, like a day-to-day, like being the attendant of a Lama, the worst job in the world and the best job in the world, right? The worst job in the world is there you are and you're seeing the Lama getting up in the morning, you're washing dirty underwear, you're cleaning, cleaning her singlet as a woman, and you're seeing in all different kinds of situations, and it's not just, that's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is it's all getting filtered through you, right? And the more projections, the more mental afflictions you have, son of a gun, the Lama turns out to have the same ones. <laughs> Go figure. You know? If you're wearing gloves that are just covered with soot, all the snow that you come and talk with, it's just always a bit gray, have you noticed? And the more you get to know the snow, the darker it gets. It's just that really weird snow, you know? So in this way, there's some advantage, as it happens so often in Tibet, of the great lamas, the great lamas, that you don't get to know, you don't get close enough, you can't get your little grimy mittens on them. You see them from afar. Traditional Tibet, before, before the invasion, before His Holiness had to leave, People wouldn't even look up when his holiness came. His holiness was in... You've some, maybe you've seen some of the Lowell Thomas, the films. Incredible. It looks like it's from another planet or, or from maybe a thousand years ago. But if you're there, unless you're part of his immediate entourage and the, and the, and the Dalai Lama's passing by, nobody looks up. Your eyes are down. Or if you're receiving empowerment, there he is, yeah, 500 feet away. So it's easier. It's easier. The crown ceremony, it's easier. There's the Lama way up there. You don't know anything about him. This, this fellow I met a couple of days ago, he knew nothing about the karma, but just that he was 16th, whatever that means. Maybe he had 15 brothers or something. You know, he didn't know. And so knew nothing about him. And then the mind was wide open, just like, well, I wonder what's going to happen. Like that. It's the same theme as the earlier one. And that is the Lama, the more the Lama appears like you. If you're a woman and a Lama's a woman, that might be more difficult. Because it's kind of like you, right? Or of your age, like when I went to Dharamsala and I was 21, his holiness was only 36. I thought, he's only 36, what could he know? And he's kind of like me, you know, you know like kind of young. And the, Well, I met him once and I, that shattered that silly preconception. Because my, my notion, as you might know of my story, when I was up in Norway, it was the wise old man, right? That was the archetype. That's the Lama. That's the guru. That's not women. So sorry. Aristotle took care of you, by the way. You're the emotional ones. One more legacy of Aristotle. The, the ever so beloved refrigerator head. You know. But for me, it had to be, he had to be old and he had to be a man. So his two tutors were... But Dalai Lama, 36. And, even, and, the, and the photos where he's even, even younger. So these are silly projections, right? <coughs> but if you can get closer and closer and maintain that pure vision, 
not reifying. I mean, if it's idolatry, if just that hero worship, then okay, never mind. That's just okay. Fine, fine, whatever. But next, you know, you're not, you're not practicing guru yoga. But if you actually are practicing authentically, then the closer the lama is to you, the more similar the lama appears to you. If in the meantime you're purifying your own mind, you too are practicing, right? You too are really probing into your very identity to see whether there's really somebody here who corresponds to your own conceptions about yourself or whether that too is empty. The more you see that all this, this bundle of reified guck that we call me as a sentient being the more you see it's empty, and then you attend to the Lama, and you see the reified guck being sprayed out there, of course, that's what happens, and you see that's also empty, then the more and more similar to the point that, like, Narrambuche is his holiness younger brother. How do you like to have Dalai Lama as your, as your older brother? Could you maintain pure vision? No. How about for your dad? Like, how about your dad? Right? Did they have to go someplace else? You know, dad's dad. But, you know, Dingo now he's something. Did they have to go elsewhere? Or could they actually develop pure vision towards their own father? I mean, it's a father, right? It's a father. And of course they did. So the closer it is, if you can still maintain that pure vision, the more powerful it is. Until finally you look in the mirror, and until finally you don't need the mirror, and you look inside, and you find Buddha. You see your own face, not in a mirror, by identifying Rikpa. And it's Rikpa knowing itself. So beware of mother tigresses. So now what I'd like to do is return to what we've just done and try to give some clarification. Also, I've altered my translation a bit. This is a 20-year-old translation. I think my understanding has shifted since I did this 20 years ago. So we're going now to page 121 in the text. People listening by podcast, you might want to have your book in hand, because I will be correcting the translation as we go. No major errors, but one point right towards the end of what I read this morning really does need a bit of work, which I've already done here. So on page bottom of page 121. So now a bit of commentary. At that time, the spiritual mentor, which is simply the guru, the lama, should provide the following instruction. Oh, now steadily observe this consciousness at the time of placing the mind steadfastly and without modification. Well, what is a mind without modification? Just to keep things rolling here, I'm going to answer the question. It would be more enjoyable to really play it out and humiliate you a little bit, but um, <laughs> time is short. I really enjoy it, but you know, I can't have everything. So mind without modification, well, you know what it's for. The whole practice of settling the mind in its natural state is to take your configured psyche and unconfigure it so it dissolves into its ground state, an unmodified state of substrate consciousness. Right? So that would be the unmodified. Not ultimately, but nevertheless, it's stripped down. It's no longer male, female, human, old, young, or anything else. It's stripped down right to that stem cell consciousness, right? So that's unmodified. So you've placed your mind steadfastly and without modification. Steadfastly means with stability, which what he's referring to, of course, is he's kind of like assuming that you've done what he said to do earlier. You've achieved shamatha. Because he said, do it until you finished. 
So let's just pause there for a moment. It's a really important pause. What we've skipped entirely here, again, because we have only eight weeks, is all the preliminary practices that are taught here. He does refer to them. Padmasambhava does refer to them very briefly. And then on the first, what was it, 60 pages or so of the text, there's a real unpacking of those same preliminary practices by a very close disciple of Kamalingba, right? So we know that it's right on track. It's not just some later aggregate or, how do you say, addition, but an unpacking of what Guru Rinpoche was referring to, right? And so we can say this, and I know that I speak, really I do, I speak for all the lamas in this tradition when I say the following. The more that you have really, I'm going to use the metaphor, tilled the soil, aerated the soil, mulched the soil, fertilized the soil, watered the soil of your mind before you move into shamatha, in whatever way works, right, in terms of purifying the mind of obscurations, purifying the mind as much as you can of mental afflictions, and then also this accruing of merit, of inspiration, of spiritual energy, momentum, call it what you like, the more you've done that by way of these so-called preliminary practices, the easier shamatha is going to be. If you've done very little of that, you're going to be finding that you've got a lot of stuff coming up, a lot of issues to deal with, outer obstacles, inner obstacles, Losing inspiration, getting depressed, frustrated. Oh, I don't think I can do this. Maybe somebody else can. I'm probably too white or something. You know, I'm not Tibetan. I'm not a Tukul, whatever. You know, probably run out of gas. Even, you may have. I saw this happen not long ago. Someone in a setting where it was just, it was just perfect. Like it took a lot of time to get there. And finally, the outer circumstances just Whoa, perfect. You know, really perfect. The outer mandala. The person continued, lost confidence, lost confidence, lost confidence. Oh, I think I need to go get a job. Even though there was no need for money, the person was set, supported, totally. Oh, I think I need to get a job. But I'll come back, I'm sure. And he hit the ejector seat. I do not stand in judgment. If you think that was condescension, or you're wrong. You're wrong. I don't at all. I think he probably, I think, no, I'm not, I was about to say, I think he probably, no, I don't, I think he did, made the right decision. If you've lost inspiration, if you've lost vision, if you've lost confidence, then why should you sit there, even if you're in an outwardly ideal setting, why should you sit there and plug away without inspiration, without confidence, having lost, Why? Why not go off and do something you do find confidence in? So I do not stand in judgment. But there it was. Finally, it was really quite ideal. Somebody else moved into that. Oh, that person flourishing. Really flourishing. Right? I don't think the second one's better than the first one. She was ready for that situation. He wasn't ready for that situation, which means he's ready for some other situation. That's it. So... So these preliminary practices, whether in, in the Dujum Tersar tradition, the new treasure tradition of the Dujum lineage, specifically oriented to us, of course, that whole Dujum lineage of Dujum Lingba, Dujum Rinpoche, and now Dujum Yangsit Rinpoche, his marvelous Tuku reincarnation. And there are two of them, one born in Bhutan, one in Tibet. Whether there, or whether these, what I've just finished, uh, almost finished translating, 
the preliminaries in the Pemalingba tradition from Gangtuntugo Rinpoche. I'm translating every evening, almost every evening, just translating away, translating away. So there's another lineage. But of course, there are many, many lineages, right? The first teaching that Geshe Rapten gave to this little group that wasn't just one-on-one, but a little tiny group back in 1971, one of these, you know, one of us, hippies, asked him, would you please teach us the preliminary practices according to Gampupa? That's what he taught. He taught the preliminary practices according to the teachings of this great Kagyupa sage. And he's, a, you know, he's an arch Gelupa Geshe, so open, so deep. He said, absolutely, yes, if that's what you wish, there it is. And he delivered the goods. So the point here being is that there are these, look for the right term, I want to be very careful. These strategies, these sequences of practices that have become well, very well formatted, that's not a pejorative term in any way, 100,000 this, 100,000 and so forth. And for many people, especially over you know, the decades or centuries of Tibet, the approach itself was found to be inspiring. They were drawn to it. They had faith in it. They found it very transformative, purifying, and really did what needed to be done. And over some time, then this whole issue of becoming 100,000, 100,000, that came up. It seems like maybe the 19th century. I checked. It seems like 19th century, fairly recent, because I see no reference to it in Dujumli. I haven't seen any reference to it in any text no, uh, earlier than the 20th century. Now, I'm not a scholar, but I haven't. Laid up Lingba, no reference. Dujum Lingba, no reference. Bema Lingba, no reference. You know. uh, so it's not to say it's bad, but what it is to say it's not the only way. And that's, what, that's, why, I do find, I, that's why I do kind of recoil. When I, sign, when I find people so rigidly adhering to a particular lineage or particular approach, saying, you've got to do this way, you've got to do 100,000. Oh, you did 100,000 in that lineage? Have to start all over again. You're doing Vajrasattva in that lineage. That doesn't count. You have to do it all over in this lineage, because that doesn't count at all. Okay. You know, okay. So I'm, I have no criticism whatsoever of, these, of this tradition. But there is the point that His Holiness made, and I was translating for him, so I know what he said. It was in his first teaching trip to Europe. He had visited there earlier to listen to the wise people of the West. That was 73 but didn't go teaching. For the first time came teaching in 1979. And Geshe Rapten said, Alan, you're translating for him. That was who I was. With fear and trembling that I did. I prepared as well as I could. Switzerland, Greece, and you know, some of you know the story. It's a very brief one. But he was visiting a Gagyupa center, one that was established, one of the many established by Kalurimache. But it was basically a couple who had a couple of friends over. That was the center, you know. This is 1979. And Kalur dropped by once in Greece, gave some teachings, said, do the preliminary practices, and then he's off. He never came back, you know. So these people had virtually no background in Buddhism whatsoever. And I tell you, no lie, the only books in Greek at that time on Tibetan Buddhism were by Lopsang Ramba, <laughs> which is sheer fiction. May I use the word bullshit? I think it's kind of okay. I mean, it's complete nonsense. You know, That's all they had. And so it was Losan Ramba and Kalurimachi. A little bit of difference between the two. You know? And so that's it. So they had, and if they couldn't speak English, then kind of they had nothing to go back on. We had a few books back then. No, no, 79, not too bad. Had a number of books out. So these, these 
Dana students, so inspired by Kalur Rinpoche, had faith in Kalur Rinpoche, and then had faith in what he said. They said, we're really struggling with these. The mandala offering, where is Mount Meru exactly? <laughs> and the four continents. I saw one Geshe. Oh, it was one of the hardest translations. I'm rambling, sorry, but I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> there was one Geshe who, marvelous Geshe. And he took the four continents, and he took the globe, and he tried to get them to match. And I was translating for him. And I almost exploded with laughter. I like, this is not going to work. In my mind, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. And I had to say it. Like, here's the Western continent. Here's, the, here's like Africa. You know, we're going to do a match. And here's North America. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. And I just, and the Lama said, okay, never mind. Because he thought I was just about to explode, you know. I just thought it was so hilarious that it just, there's just no way that's going to work out, you know. So people have no background at all. That's going to be a tough one. What exactly am I offering here? And so forth. So these, these students, they had his holiness dropping in on the center, which was basically a couple's house and some Dharma friends. You know, it's kind of cool. The Nobel Prize was 10 years later. And uh, they said, our lamas told us we need to do these preliminary practices. But we don't really want to, and we don't understand them. And what should we do? And his whole response, very briefly, was, these preliminary practices, 100,000 avatrasattva, the guru yoga, so forth and so on, 100,000 prostrations, so forth and so on, these are not preliminary practices to Buddha Dharma. That's not what the Buddha taught when he came to Saranat. Right? Okay, I said before, you know, hit the deck, go 100,000, and then I'll teach you the Four Noble Truths. He didn't do that. Right? So then his holiness said, you want to know the preliminary practices, learn the Four Noble Truths. Learn the three principles of the path, renunciation, bodhicitta, the, the view of emptiness, the middle way of view. Develop the six perfections. Learn the Mahayana view, the Shravakayana view. Practice them. Samadhi, ethics, samadhi, wisdom. That's the preliminary practice. That's the foundation. As Shravaka, I'm elaborating a little bit, but everything I'm saying is true. The Shravakayana is the, the, is the foundation for the Bodhisattvayana. Bodhisattvayana is the foundation for Vajrayana. So that's your foundation, right? And then once you have established that foundation in the Shravakayana, Four Noble Truths and so forth, the Three Higher Trainings, the Six Perfections, Bodhicitta, View of Emptiness, now, if you want to go into Vajrayana, now with that foundation, now you do Vajrayana, Guru Yoga, the Vajrasattva, and so forth and so on. Those preliminary practices are preliminary to Vajrayana practice. But these people, I'm not sure they knew what the Four Noble Truths are. You know. And so, preliminary practices. I know as, as during the years that I was translating for Gautam Butch, he emphasized again and again the importance of really fathoming the Four Noble Truths, the Four Immeasurables, the foundational teachings of the Shravakayana, the Bodhisattvayana. In fact, when, he, when we first published the earlier edition of the Vajra Essence, he said, all right, there are certain requirements for you to be allowed to read this text. But he made no reference to doing the preliminary practices or to receiving empowerment. He said, you must have respect for the Shravakayana. Respect for the Bodhisattva, and then he went on. 
absolutely no sectarianism here. Otherwise, you're unsuitable. Don't read. Now, there was a bit more. Everything he said, I have copied verbatim into the new edition. And then all I've had added to that is the teachings from Dujum Lingba himself, or Padmasambhava by way of Dujum Lingba, in which Padmasambhava says, who are the qualified disciples for these teachings? That's it. So I lay out the restrictions for the text. It's what Gautra Rinpoche said, with his 40 years of teaching in the West, and him being the representative for all of North America, for Dujum Rinpoche and Dujum Lingba. I have nothing more to add for that. If I did, it would be obnoxious. Padmasambhava said this, my Lama said this, but I be the interpreter, I'm going to say this. I've suddenly become very visible. I think it's time to say bullshit again. If an interpreter sits in that role, who the hell do you think you are? You think Dujum Lingma missed out something? You want to help him out there a little bit? Or you want to get your own Lama? He missed something there, so you're going to... Come on. You know. So those are the restrictions for these thousand pages of Dujum Lingma's his teachings. It's Dujum Lingba and my own Lama who told me, encouraged me, authorized me, and gave me the blessing to, to do the translation. So I feel this very strongly. You see a little bit of energy here. There is. The preparation in order to really, for the teachings there on Shamata where we picked up, in order for that to go to smooth, the more you have established a foundation of the Shravakayana, really understood the Four Noble Truths and the surrounding teachings. It's not just one, it's not just one discourse, right? Those teachings, those foundational teachings of the Buddha and the Pali Canon, and the Shravakayana more generally, the more you've practiced those, saturated your mind in them, you do not need to do preliminary practices before doing that, for heaven's sakes. And then you go into the, into the Bodhisattva Yana, the six perfections, ancient Bodhicitta. Perhaps you study the Chitta Mantra view, the Madhyamaka view, the Prasangaka Madhyamaka view. And you're not just studying intellectually, but you study your practice, study your practice, thoroughly integrating. So you really have saturated your mind, your whole way of life, in these foundational teachings of the Shravakayana, the Bodhisattvayana, perhaps you've also studied some Vajrayana, right? Then on that basis, the more you've purified in all of these ways, then the more your actual practice of the shamatha will go well, be able to finish it, do it just what Padmasambhava said, settle your mind in its natural state. And the more you've done that, the more perfectly primed you'll be with that sh- brief but very intense section on Vipassana. Right? I'm not going to review it, but you'll be very well prepared for that. You'll slip right through it. He said it, do it for a day or for as long as necessary. Right? It was really short. If you've achieved shamatha, it really might be a short. Because what you need to do, of course, is shatter the reification of your own mind and shatter your reification of your own substrate consciousness. You need to realize the emptiness of your mind, coarse mind, your mind, and realize the emptiness, the lack of inherent nature of your substrate consciousness. You're there, oh, you're right next to Dzogchen. You're right next to being able to come into the presence of Padmasambhava and receive the pointing out instructions. And it will strike. You will break through. You'll cut through. But there are many, many ways. Let's not be dogmatic, rigid, or clinging tenaciously. My Lama said, my Lama, my lineage, my lineage. If there's only one way, then the Buddha would have taught only one way. If only one of the schools of Dravidian Buddhism is the right one, the other one should just all take a hike, pack up, and go home. And just leave the good one remaining. But as Geshe Raptan said years ago, he said, you know, we have this diversity of, for example, within Tibetan Buddhism, of the four schools. He said, this is like taking one piece of pure gold 
He said, I remember he said it in the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. I remember it so vividly. It's like taking a, just a piece of pure gold, 100%, and shaping it this way, and then you shape it that way, shape it that way, and that way. And each shape is different. They're all solid gold. That was Geshe Rath. So that's it. So I hope there was a middle way that came through there. That these very, the, the tradition of the seven preliminaries, the five preliminaries, this school, that school, Kaigyut, Nyingma, so forth and so on, all good. And insofar as we practice them with faith, with a mind that is focused and clear, it's been demonstrated so many times. They can be wonderfully transformative and effective, and give great blessing. But if you don't have faith, what's the point? And if your mind is just scattered, you're sitting there and you're going through the outward motions, your arm moving around, your lips going blah, blah, blah. Really, what's the point? And nobody's fooling anybody, except that you can say at the end, I finished my preliminaries. Who cares? Who cares? If your mind hasn't been purified, now who cares? It's kind of like, whatever. So this is kind of important, and this brings us right back to the text. So, observe this consciousness at the time of placing the mind, settling the mind, steadfastly, that is, with stability, of course, and without modification. Well, he just referred to Shamad, of course. But now observe the consciousness. In other words, you remember, if you've remembered, if, you, if you've memorized by now, I won't quiz you, but the four modes of mindfulness, remember the third one, is where your, your, your awareness just kind of merges into the vacuity of the substrate, this absence of mindfulness, but then you invert your awareness right in upon itself and you have self-illuminating mindfulness. Remember that? Well, that's what he's talking about, isn't it? The fourth one, where you're really observing the consciousness. Your mind is history and you're just inverting awareness right in upon its own nature. And once you've calmed the compulsive thoughts in your mind right where they are, well, that's, of course, it's shamatha, isn't it? And the mind is unmodified, it's shamatha, isn't it? Isn't there emotionless stability? That's shamatha, isn't it? You've heard it so many times. Bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. What's non-conceptuality? Stillness. Right. And so we shouldn't be surprised when he says, oh, this is shamatha. <laughs> what else could it possibly be? But it's wonderful that he set it up so clearly. Oh, this is called shamatha, but it is not the nature of the mind. Now, we see he's digging deeper. Because earlier, already, he's already stated, I'm not going to go back and read it again, but if you achieve shamatha, your mind is settled in its natural state, you've, you've identified the essential nature of your mind, right? But you know what he's talking about now. You're all old hands. Yeah, on a relative level, this is the nucleus within samsara, before it gets configured as a man's mind, woman's mind, human mind, dog's mind, and so forth. Yes, but now we're beyond that. We finished shamatha earlier. We had a refresher course on revealing awareness. We had a deeper course in really probing into the really mode of existence of consciousness, of mind, to realize the empty nature. So we know he's going beyond that relative nature of the substrate consciousness, and he's also going beyond simply the emptiness of the mind. He's now going for this ground, fundamental nature of mind. And if all you've done is settled into quiescence, shamatha, then that's not nature of mind. We're going to have to go, but you've gotten that far, good. But now we're going deeper. Now it's the time for cutting through. Now, 
in the writings of Garab Doje, first teacher of, of, of Dzogchen in this historical era. He states very, very explicitly, and I've cited this in uh, Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic. I've cited him and where it comes from. Okay, if you want to check, check there. Uh, but Prahyavatsra, or Garab Doje, says when referring to cutting through, what are you cutting through? I've said this before, say it again. What you're cutting through is your substrate consciousness. Because if all you need to do is cut through your coarse mind, then shamatha, who needs, who needs majyamatha, who needs okshan, if you're just trying to cut through your coarse mind? Right? So, that's what we're about now. When he says identifying awareness, this is the cutting through to the original purity, the essential nature, the original purity of pristine awareness. So, this is called shamatha, but it's not the nature of the mind. It's not what we're getting at now. A chapter or so, or kind of earlier on? Oh, sure, sure. But we've already been there and done that, right? We're moving on. So now steadily observe the very nature of your own mind that is being still. The very nature of your mind. Clearly, he's not referring to its phenomenological nature. You already nailed that one. It's luminous, it's clear, and so forth. It's cognizant, clear, blissful, serene, still. You, you got that one, right? So we're going deeper. What is the very nature of the mind that is being still? The noun. Mind is a noun. Chitta is a noun. Sem is a noun. It's not a verb. It's a noun. Right? How does that noun, the referent of that noun, how does it exist? Right? That one that has the attribute of it is being still. So it's not the stillness. It's that which is still. How does that exist? That's what he's getting at. He's really going for the deep cut now. Is there a resplendent emptiness that is, I said earlier, nothing, and that's what it says here. I'm going to say now, is there a resplendent emptiness that is no thing, no hyphen thing? It is no thing. It's not nothing in the sense of being a sheer nothing whatsoever. Right? It's a no thing that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance, shape, or color. A resplendent emptiness. In other words, something more than a mere absence. There's a mere absence of an elephant in this room right now. There's just, you look for it, and this is one of those things. Somebody asked me just recently. How do, I'm not finding, but how do I know that I just haven't looked hard enough? Right? Well, let's take this example of silly, but not that silly. An elephant, full-grown elephant, just to make sure. Full-grown elephant. Okay? Everybody knows what I'm referring to, how big they are. You know that this, I just hit the wall, so there's no elephant behind the curtain. You might have been wondering, but there isn't one. You know, it's wall all the way, it's just the curtain, is just right next to the wall. So now I think you have pretty much the contours of this room. Back there, we can check, but I think you can tell, there's no, there's no elephant back there, is there? You might just want to, let's just make totally sure. No elephant? Okay, take her, take her word for it, she's not kidding us. So, so now you're looking around in the room, it's one of these things that if there were an elephant in this room, you would know it. It's not the elephant looked hard enough. Like looking at Marta, okay, Marta, stand up. You know, like there's an elephant under her. She doesn't need a stand up, right? And so it's one of those things where you look around and I'm not finding an elephant, but I've also not found, found carbon. I'm looking around, I don't see carbon either, but that's just because I don't know how to look. 
Is there carbon here? Of course there is, but I, I can't see it. So I'm just not finding it. But that's no big deal. That doesn't mean that there's no carbon in the room. Of course there is, but I can't see it. So it's not that. If there were carbon in the room, I probably wouldn't find it anyway, or I wouldn't know one way or another. But if there were an elephant in this room, we'd all know it. So we're not merely not finding an elephant. We have found the absence of an elephant. That's different. That's knowledge. Not finding your keys doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means you haven't found your keys, right? But finding that there is no elephant to be found, now that's knowledge. So you can all report home if you like. We checked in the room, there's no elephants. So that's it. This emptiness is not simply a not finding, it is a finding that something is absent. But now he says resplendent. As we see, the absence of an elephant in this room, there's nothing resplendent about that. It's just like, no elephant, okay, got it. I mean, I totally know it, I got it, but that's it, nothing resplendent. But when he's talking about the emptiness of the mind, the emptiness of inherent nature, the shunyata, this is old science. This has been an experiment run thousands upon thousands of times for hundreds and hundreds of years. When, pe- when individuals gain, especially gain, a direct, non-conceptual, unmediated realization, non-dual realization of emptiness, when that happens, there are many reports, so I don't have to make this up. That experience, you become an arya. If you're on the shravaka path, you become, you become a stream enter. If you're on the bodhisattva path, you become an arya bodhisattva. Gain direct realization of emptiness, which is nirvana. Well, how is that described? What are they, what are they, when they come out, say, please report, how was that? And they say, it was taintless bliss. Zakmekidewa, taintless. A bliss free of any flaw, free of any taint, immaculate, without defilement. Every bliss that we experience, including the bliss of resting in the substrate consciousness, every bliss that we experience that is even tinged with reification, and resting in the substrate consciousness is, you haven't haven't dealt with it yet, you haven't realized emptiness yet, every experience of bliss that is tinged with the reification, the delusional tendency of reification is called tainted. And it may be tainted also with attachment. Sexual bliss, okay? You've got reification and you have craving, right? And so forth, right? So any bliss that is tainted with mental affliction is called tainted. And you might recall, zaktit tamjit dungalwa, everything that is tainted is unsatisfying. In the final analysis, soon or later, you'll find out. Even the bliss of shamatha, not unsatisfying while you're there, but that's the problem. It doesn't last. It's only a matter of time. It's like a, like a bomb with a fuse on it. You don't know when it's going to go off, but it will go off. And you will lose your shamatha. If that's all you have, you'll lose it. And then you can say, oh, bummer, and now you're unsatisfied. I thought that was a keeper, and it wasn't. Oh, I'm so bummed. So you look back, how was your bliss? Well, unsatisfying. It didn't last. There's nothing wrong with it, but it didn't last. Why didn't last? Well, because you had not eradicated the underlying root of delusion. You realize emptiness, the non-conceptual, non-dual, unmediated awareness, and a zakmekidewa, undefiled, taintless, flawless, immaculate bliss. And that's the bliss. That bliss is not coming from emptiness, right? 
any more than the luminosity of the substrate consciousness comes from the substrate. It doesn't. It doesn't. No, the substrate, luminosity is from the substrate consciousness. Similarly, the awareness with which you are non-dually, non-conceptualizing emptiness, where is its bliss coming from? From itself. Where else would it be coming from? Not from emptiness. It's not like little particles of bliss coming and smacking you in the face. It's coming from your own awareness. But here's the beauty, beautiful, another beautiful metaphor, and that is when you slip into this non-conceptual, non-dual, direct realization of emptiness, it's like pouring one glass of water into another glass of water, and that is your awareness and emptiness are completely indivisible. There's absolutely no sense of my awareness is over here and emptiness is over there. Therefore, the emptiness is saturated, non-dually, with bliss, taintless, immaculate, undefiled bliss, which means your experience of emptiness is blissful, it's wondrous, it's resplendent. Does that answer the question? It's resplendent, it's glorious, it's magnificent. It's ambrosial, like nothing ever before. Resplendent emptiness. Why? Because the sheer absence was something really cool? No. Your awareness of it was blissful, and that awareness of it was non-dual from the emptiness that you are non-dually and non-conceptually realizing. So resplendent emptiness. That should be totally clear. Yeah? It's good? Okay, good. Wouldn't that be cool to be geishas of experiencing that? Outwardly, doesn't look like much happening. Like, didn't see him, woo, you know, no big grin. People in Tukdam, clear light of... There's no, they're not happy. They're not smiling. That's because they don't have a body. Is there a resplendent emptiness that is no thing, that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance, shape, or color? That is called its empty essence. The empty essence of your mind. Well, that's clear. Now we've gone to the deepest, the ultimate ultimate essence, ultimate essential nature. That's emptiness. That's shunya. That's emptiness. That's nirvana. Isn't there a luster of that emptiness? Now we're going to the other aspect of it. The luster is the luster of rikpa, of course. Isn't there a luster of that emptiness that is unceasing, clear, immaculate, soothing and luminous, as it were, that is called the luminous nature. Luminous nature of your own mind, luminous nature, of course, that is nothing other than rikpa. The rikpa is empty. The emptiness is luminous. That is called this luminous nature. It's manifest nature of luminosity. And now, summing that up, we have now, it's so clear, he could, I don't know how he could have chosen better words, but this last sentence needs repair. It was not a good sentence. This needed to be line edited, and it wasn't. But I take full responsibility. I'm the translator. But I'm fixing it now. This final sentence in this paragraph. Its essential nature is the indivisibility of sheer emptiness. And that is with no additives. Just sheer emptiness, just like that. Just sheer emptiness, right? That's clear. It's the indivisibility of sheer emptiness not established as anything, not established as anything, and, here's where the correction is, and, not in, its, but rather and, it's the indivisibility of the sheer emptiness and its unceasing, vivid luster, 
not such, scratch that, in which awareness is resplendent and brilliant as it were. I'll read that sentence now again. Its essential nature is the sheer indivisibility of sheer emptiness, not established as anything, and its unceasing vivid luster, in which awareness is resplendent and brilliant as it were. So it's a very familiar theme. Primordial non-duality, the indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity. Emptiness and the luster of pristine awareness. They're non-dual. So now you've realized that, then you've realized you've, you've cut through. You've cut through to the ground pristine awareness. But you'll see, it's so clear here, it could not be clearer, that if you're still grasping onto the inherent nature, that your mind is a thing, any kind of thing, whether it's physical or intangible, some mental thing, something that's really in here, you know, my mind. If you're still holding onto that, you can't possibly realize this. There's no way to hold on, to continue reifying my mind and realize Rikpa. The door's closed. This way he took it step by step. Realize the phenomenal nature of your awareness, bliss, luminosity, all of that. And then he takes this short and that very, very sharp, tough, I know it's tough, Vipassana, shattering through the reification of your mind and your substrate consciousness. So you see for yourself they're both empty. They're empty. They're empty. They're not to be found. You find that they are not to be found. You make a discovery. They are unfindable, like the elephant in this room, unfindable, end of discussion, definitive, certain knowledge. And now you're ready to realize not only its empty essence, but also its luminous essence, the non-duality of those two, and then you cut through. Then you become awake. Then you become lucid, right? Then you become lucid. Now you've recognized who you are. You're seeing your own face. It's all clear, yes? So that's in its simplicity. But now this next paragraph, I don't want to move too quickly, but I don't want to just linger and linger either. Here, page 122, middle of the page now. This present, unmoving consciousness. Now you're resting there in the simplicity of pristine awareness. You have broken through, you've cut through. This present, unmoving, dong mepa, pristine awareness or primordial consciousness is free of the eight extremes of conceptual elaboration, prapancha. And one of those is coming and going. It's beyond. It's beyond arising and ceasing, it's beyond existence and non-existence. It's beyond one and many, and it's beyond coming and going. Beyond, 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 four times. This is one of them, beyond coming and going. There's no motion. Right? So this unmoving consciousness, which cannot be directly expressed in words, that is, it is by nature ineffable, cannot be, ex- masam jume, cannot be expressed in words or in thought. Cannot at all to anybody. is given the name pristine awareness. This present unmoving consciousness, which which cannot be directly expressed in words, is given the name pristine awareness. I've added the word pristine for clarity's sake. That which thinks, but that was its unmoving nature, right? Resting in the total absence of activity, beyond all conceptual frameworks. When it's just resting, there it is. But Rikpa doesn't just rest, right? It's effulgent. It's an infinite, really one can say boundless, infinite source 
of creative expressions. They're called rikbetzel, the creative expressions, the effulgences of rikpa. If it didn't have that, then the Buddhas would be useless. They would just be abiding in nirvana, and they wouldn't even know we're here, and they'd never come out. Right? So dharmakaya manifests as sambhogakaya, manifests as nirmanakaya. Rikpa manifests, manifests, manifests. So how does rikpa manifest? That which thinks, that's manifesting, that which thinks is this alone. It's nothing other than pristine awareness. So it's given the name mind. This was getting at earlier when he said this, when, when Padmasambha was saying, what do you mean, what do you mean, what do you mean? He says, no, what do you mean you can't find it? It's this mind right now. What do you mean? It's this awareness right now. It's this ordinary awareness. What do you mean you can't find it? Basta! Uh, the Italians and Spanish have that one nailed. Best word. Much better than stop. That's weak. Basta! You know. Your mind is nothing other than a display, an expression of rigpa. And it's called mind. But it's not something else. So don't look elsewhere outside of your mind. Oh, my mind set aside. Where's rigpa? Where's rigpa? You know. Who's asking the question? Your mind. What's your mind? An expression of rikpa. It is this that is mindful of all kinds of things, so it is given the name mindfulness. Rikpa manifests as its effulgence as mindfulness, a mental factor. While it is not seen, you can't see it as an object, it is a special seeing that is clear, steady, unmediated, and steadfast. So it's given the name vipassana, or insight. That too is an expression of rikpa, not other than rikpa. It is that which makes distinctions among all specific phenomena, like separating the layers of mushrooms. So it's given the name discerning wisdom or discerning intelligence. That too is nothing other than Rigpa. And now all terms such as Sugata Garbha, the womb of the Sugatas, the soul Bindu, or quintessence, soul Bindu, just leave it untranslated, absolute space, I used to translate it to absolute nature, but it's yin, really has a quality of space, absolute space, Primordial consciousness, used to translate as primordial wisdom. Consciousness is more literal. The middle way, ultimate truth, Mahamudra, Ati Yoga, and emptiness, Shunyata, are names of this alone. None of these are other than Rikpa. All of these are subsumed within Rikpa, are encompassed by Rikpa. The great perfection, Zopachimbu, does mean, I'll stick with it, it's a nice translation, it sounds nice, it's not incorrect, great perfection. To say great completion, that's not incorrect. Some people prefer that. There's nothing wrong with that. One that I've not seen anybody else use, but it's really quite spot on, but I won't use it regularly, the great encompassment. It encompasses all the nine yanas. It encompasses samsara and nirvana. It encompasses mind and discerning intelligence and mindfulness and emptiness. It encompasses, it's all encompassing. Nothing is outside of. Rikpa. This steadfast awareness exists. So it is that which sees form with the eyes, experiences sound with the ears, smells with the, no- with the nose, tastes with the tongue, and so on. These sensory perceptions, they're not other than Rikpa either. All the experiencers of such things are just this clear conscious awareness of the present. They are nothing other than, they are not apart from Rikpa, so don't look for Rikpa outside of that. Rather, turn your awareness in upon itself. 
However, since we have this, this all the above, since we have this rikpa, and it variously appears as dislike. Oh, now we've gone really mundane. Oh, I don't like the taste of coffee. I don't like the taste of wine. I like the taste of ice cream, as long as it's not chocolate, uh, coffee ice cream. I like, I don't like. It, it variously appears as dislike, attachment, hatred, and so on. And because it knows, remembers, and is aware, we are given the name sentient being. Since we are caught up in, we reify these as things in themselves, and we identify with them. And then we've just identified ourselves as sentient being. Right? <coughs> but even the hatred itself is not something other than rikpa. It's not by nature toxic. Yeah, we're doing fine here. So we can finish this little phase. Although there is constant direct mindful awareness, it does not recognize itself, and that is given the name conate ignorance or conate unawareness. The word is klenke. You're born with it. You're born with it. Not innate as somehow intrinsic or something like that. Kone, klenge. So again, a bit of polishing over 20 years. Klenge means you're born with it. Konate, konate, konate. Nate as in born. It's a direct translation. I like literal translations when possible. So this is the ignorance that we're born with. We can't blame it on our parents or on materialists or the degenerate era, etc. Or our biological ancestry and our genetic code and so forth. This is, this is deeper than all that. You have this conate ignorance even if you don't have a biological embodiment. If you were born as a deva. If you're in the bardo, you don't have a biological base. You still have ignorance. You're born into the bardo, you're born with conate ignorance, unawareness. And why? Because we're always focusing elsewhere. Always focusing elsewhere. All that, you know, screwing around the bardo, oh, like that, you know. And then we're, 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 we're born, oh, where's a, where's, where's, where's a boob? I want a boob. And you hopefully find one, because that's what you want more than anything else. Right? But you want something there that will give you a sense of safety and nourishment and so forth. You know, baby wants a boob, I think, more than anything else. Isn't it true? And the warmth of the mother's embrace and so forth. Best thing there. Your ultimate refuge when you're you know, two days old. And so, but we're always looking outward. And then when we're looking outward, of course, we don't see what's inward. And therefore, we're unaware. It's a conate unawareness because we are oriented to look out for everything that which makes us happy and unhappy. And how is it unaware? How is it ignorant? Although the eye sees everything out there, it does not reflect the see itself. And likewise, the mind does not see, does not know, and does not cognize itself. So this is called unawareness or ignorance. Consciousness that appears to itself is called pristine awareness and primordial consciousness. In short, it is just this clear, steady consciousness that is ordinarily, naturally present right now. So in this text, Padmasambhava is very generous. He could really stop there. Right? But you'll see he doesn't. He continues and continues. And so in case that nail didn't quite strike all the way through, I'm going to give you another nail and another nail. 
just anything to help. He just, he's so persistent, so patient, citing one. So, so he's going to give multiple pointing out instructions over the coming pages, coming back to it, coming back to it, from this angle, from that angle, citing this, this Dzogchen Tantra and that Dzogchen Tantra. He's just going to help you in every way he possibly can to get your awareness to come in upon itself so you can recognize your own face. So very generous. He didn't hold back anything. We have one or two minutes right now. Let's just, in your own way, with no liturgy, just dedicate merit, whatever benefit there is from this, whatever virtue, whatever merit. Right now, just bring to mind your highest aspirations and dedicate the merit, the virtue of this time together, our meditations, to the realization of these aspirations for yourself and for the well-being of the entire world. So, people listening by podcast, you've heard my voice. I know I have an American accent. How could I not? It's English, obviously. So it's somebody else. It's not your voice. And then you may be wondering, oh, does he have realization? Does he not have realization? Blah, blah, blah. For people listening by podcast or people listening here, Something you might try. It might be interesting. And they couldn't do this back in Tibet. We may have a little bit of an edge, tiny bit of an edge. And that is you might record into your own little cell phone or whatever, right? Your voice, giving these pointing out instructions. No elaboration, and you set the pace, but your voice. And then Padmasambhava is still teaching you. If Padmasambhava can teach through me, he can teach through a bullfrog or a turtle or a hummingbird. I mean, really. If he can teach through me, he can teach through anything. right? But if he can teach through me, he can teach through you. The speech is Padmasambhava. The lake-born Vajra, the speech is Padmasambhava. And it's said of the Buddhas that their body, speech, and mind, Dhammakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nimanakaya, all same nature, right? They're not three things slapped together. You can't take them apart. And so where Padmasambhava's speech is, there's his mind. There's his embodiment. There's his nimanakaya. Right? So record your own voice. And then you'll know, oh, that's Padmasambhava's voice. That could be much better. And then if, you, your, native, if your native language is Spanish, Padmasambhava didn't speak English, you know. As far as I know, at least not in India or Tibet, why would he? So why not? 
think people listening by podcast, if you can understand what I'm saying, then you can translate what I'm saying into your own language. Why not? So why do it in English? Why use that as, you know, now that we've done it, then why not just get it in your own native language? So then Padmasambhava speaks German. He speaks with an Australian accent. He doesn't find it odd, all, at all odd there could be an Australian Lama. You know, Spanish, Russian, Portuguese, and so on. Why not let Padmasambhava speak in your language? He, of course he would. Padmasambhava doesn't need an interpreter. So that would be best, wouldn't it? Translate in your own language, in your own voice. Speaking to yourself. That's good. Just like in that vision of Dujum Lingba when he's seeing Padmasambhava, the Lake Vajra teaching, surrounded by this entourage of his disciples, and they're all emanations of him. Right? Or if you're giving teachings in a, in a lucid dream, and you have these wonderful disciples, <laughs> really wonderful disciples, and they're all listening with such devotion and reverence and humility in your lucid dream and you're expounding, turning the wheel of Dharma. You know. And they're saying, I see brilliant teachings, fantastic teachings. Wouldn't that be cool? To enlighten the disciples in your own dream? And of course, they're all emanations of your own mind. Why not? So, enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning at 9.